Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. Happy Mother's Day, friends. Uh, I was just thinking about last year and how I had the opportunity to call 17 listeners and chat with them about their lives and what they're up to. And oh my God, you guys had the most incredible stories. And for those of you who are recently joining us, go find that episode. It's in our archives and I'll list it in our show notes at AtomicMoms.com. Our guest today, Reagan Moya-Jones, you know, there's no other way to say it. She's a force of nature. She's the founder and CEO of St. Luna, which is a premium moonshine company, and the founder and former CEO of Aiden and Anae, an award-winning lifestyle brand for babies and children. I think I have at least 20 Aiden and Anae swaddles upstairs in Eliza's room. And while we're not swaddling our babes anymore, I still use them at the pool. Eliza still sleeps with one as a her blankie. They just become such a, you know, everyday part of our lives. She is the winner of the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Award and a board member of Hopeland, a charity dedicated to making sure all children have a family. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and their four daughters. And today we're talking about her brand new book, What It Takes, How I Built a $100 Million Business Against the Odds, because it comes out this week, May 7th, 2019. We discuss the most important advice you can give to mom friends who are hoping to launch a business together. We take a left turn into a really interesting conversation about how our daughters can heal residual pain we might have from being raised by critical mothers ourselves. And she also shares how she ultimately strengthened her marriage while raising her four kids excelling at her full-time job, and running her side business that ultimately grew into this $100 million company. Oh, and I got to brag. Before we pressed record, I told her I would shake things up for her and keep it fun. And when we got off the phone, she did say that I asked her questions she'd never been asked before. So if you've listened to Reagan on other podcasts, um, you know, you're in for a treat. She's full of surprises, always. We'll be right back with Reagan Moya-Jones. Reagan, I just finished your book, What It Takes. And so, of course, I feel like we're friends because we've just spent several hours together in bed, actually. So let's just cut. <laughs> let's cut to the chase. Uh, How do I build a $100 million company? You know what? I couldn't tell you. Like. <laughs> Actually, when I was approached to write this book, I was, my initial response was no, because I didn't feel that uh, I should be writing a business book. And the reason that I said that is because, you know, I, I did not like build strategic plans and follow them to the letter of the law. I, I was one of those people that just literally got out of bed every day and put my whole self into building that business and, you know, navigated the things as they were thrown at me for the most part. Obviously, as the business got bigger, there were plans put in place. But 
quite honestly, Ellie, they were by people that were way smarter than me. And, you know, it was a team at that point that was pulling together strategic plans and everything. So I, what I did say, though, was what I could do is write a book that is very honest and authentic and is my story. And, you know, the, the main motivation for me to do it was because I am a very average person and everybody sort of says, oh, sure, sure. But my point to that is the reason you don't think I'm average is because I've accomplished this with Aidan and Danae. If you had met me at the beginning of it, I'm 100% sure you would have thought I was average, you know. So the, so the whole motivation for me to write the book was because I really truly believe that if I can do it, Anyone can do it if they want it badly enough and are prepared to work harder than they've ever worked before. I I really, truly believe that. As a hiring tip, you share, you can learn a lot about a person by asking them about what they find funny. So, Reagan, what do you find funny? Oh, my gosh. I I laugh at a lot of things, but, and this is going to sound so quirky, but I'm one of those people that will literally get hysterical if somebody sort of, you know, walks into a glass door or something and <laughs> bounces off it. It's, it's, I know it's awful. And my husband always gives me grief about it. He goes, you, you find people being injured funny. I'm like, <laughs> I look, if too. anyone got really, really hurt, that would be a different story. But there is just something really hysterical about uh, somebody falling down or walking into, you know, glass doors or something. So I find that funny. But that said, you know, humor is so important to me. You know, I surround myself with people that make me laugh and get my humor because to me that uh, there's there's nothing better than, you know, laughing crazily with uh, with your friends. I can imagine my best friend, Amanda, who lives in Houston, and she just had a baby boy, and I'm sure she'll be listening to this podcast. I'm so excited she had a baby, oh, so now she'll care about my podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> there you go. But she, I'm sure, is dying over the fact that that's what you find funny, because in high school, she would just give me so much grief over the fact that like, I always found the sickest things to be the most hysterical. And even, it's actually served me really well as a parent, because even when my daughter is you know, throwing up and I'm throwing up, like there's a part of me that is still laughing at just like the horror show of right. it, which helps me Absolutely. sort of distance myself, like as though I'm watching yep. someone else experience this awfulness. <laughs> yeah. But if, if you can find humor in, and obviously not in situations where someone is genuinely hurt or you know, that is not funny, but yeah, same thing when my kids fall over and i I just laugh my ass off. I think it's hysterical. <laughs> okay, so you you run your house with military precision, and I run mine like a three ring circus. And uh, okay, <laughs> look, whatever whatever works for you. You know, like that's the thing about being a mum, right? Well, Reagan, it's not. <laughs> Oh, it's not working? It's not okay, working. well, then I could give you some tips. Yes, so you went through some growing pains with this, and you had to level with your husband about the invisible labor 
that moms are required to do and you write. Oh, I like that, by the way, invisible labor. I've never heard that. I love that term. I wish I had come up with it. I didn't, but it's it's a good one. And it is invisible. And no, you don't ever get credit for it unless you stomp around the house and tell everyone everything you're doing. Exactly. So you exactly. have this fabulous quote, and it's, like most women, I bought into the bullshit belief that these were my kids and I should be the one getting them fed and dressed and out the door rather than these are our kids and we need to figure out a system to take care of everyone as equally as possible. So what did that conversation with your husband look like and how do you make your mornings work today? Give me some of your military precision tips. (laughs) Right. Well, it was what was most fascinating to me about that situation was when I really had had enough and, um, you know, my husband just leisurely getting ready in the morning and, you know, strolling out when the kids are all backpacked on and ready to walk out the door sort of thing. And one day I just completely lost it and had a meltdown and came storming in sort of like, where the hell are you? I need some help out here. You know, what the hell? And his response was, sure, just tell me what you want me to do. And I I was kind of taken aback by that. But um, what I realized is that he was never not willing to help in any way that I needed him to. He just, you know, men just don't think about that. To your point, the invisible labor, they're not noticing that you're running around like a blue ass fly while they're just watching the news and, you know, putting their suits on. Like, it's ridiculous. So he said, absolutely. And so then... You know, we literally did sit down and and had a meeting and we divided the morning chores to get the girls out the door. And, you know, I I had to make him a list. And I've said before, it's fascinating to me that my very intelligent electronic engineer husband, who's had these children the same amount of time as I had, (laughs) doesn't understand what needs to be done. But that's a whole other conversation. Um, so I made him a list and and the division of labor has been that way ever since that conversation and it uh, it absolutely changed the game. And it was as things as simple as, you know, cutting the apples to put into the lunch boxes to go, you know, mm-hmm. things as specific as that. I was absolutely specific about what I needed and wanted him to do and and he still to this day does it. I love all that you share about your relationships in the book with your husband, you know, the you talk about the rough patches you've had with him and coming through the other side and the importance of choosing your partner. I'm really curious about your relationship with your mother because so much of this podcast has not so secretly been about healing our relationships with our own parents. And yep. you know, you you mentioned that your mom calls you out about not cooking all the time for the girls. So this goes back to what we were just saying about the invisible labor and sort of this idea that if we share that labor with others, it's sometimes we are looked down upon Mm -hmm. because of that, like that you weren't the one cooking for your daughters every single day. So your mother, you know, got you with that one. Mm -hmm. What I love is how you share at the end of your book about when your daughter, Anae, was seven months old is when you really fell in love with her. 
and you write, I loved her more than I thought it was possible to love another human being. The fractured relationship I'd had with my own mother didn't matter much anymore. It was like Anae healed something in me. She filled a hole in my heart. Yep. So how, what did it feel like to have that hole filled? Like, did you know that you had that hole in your heart before you had your daughter? Because for me, I, it wasn't until I had my daughter that I realized how fractured certain aspects of my relationship with my mother were. Right. Yeah, no, unfortunately, I was acutely aware of, of my my very fractured relationship with my mum. So, so sorry, hopefully you can edit that. Yeah, of course. Um, I just knocked a glass over. I don't know. So, wait, um, I'm not going to edit that. Uh, yeah. That is very telling. If I were a psychologist, that would be fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> there are no accidents. <laughs> Good point. Um, so, yes, very sadly, I had had a... a a very tough relationship with my mum for as long as I could remember, you know. So, um, and it wasn't until, and I, you know, I'd been, I'd had therapy over it. I, you know, I, it was, it was painful. And it, when I had a nay, you know, that all of the energy of that mother-daughter relationship that I'd been putting into my relationship with my mum got shifted to the primary mother-daughter relationship being between Anae and I. So it was it the, up until I I had Anae and, and beyond, it took me a little bit longer, but as I had more of my daughters, it, it became easier and I got stronger. But there was a long period of time where I literally couldn't even talk about my mum without bursting into tears, you know, because it's just, it's just so wrong to not have a, a fabulously close, loving relationship with your mother. It's just, you know, to me, the, the mother-child relationship, you know, should be the strongest there is, obviously, until you become an adult and then you get married and have your own family and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, it was very painful for me to know that I didn't have a good relationship with my mum. To be clear, this is what made it so difficult for me was because I knew my mum loved me in the sense that I was her daughter but and that she would literally step in front of a train for me, mm-hmm. but she didn't really like me, you know? So it was, I felt like she, she had to love me because I was her daughter and I knew that when push come to shove, she would, she would take a bullet for me. But that just made it even more fucked up, really, because, you know, you've got on one hand this woman that, you know, would would take a bullet for you. On the other hand, is constantly beating you down, telling you're not good enough, you know, all of those things. So it was very, very confusing for me. Um, and it was it was really when I realized that Anae, especially, and then even more so as I had more of my daughter's that I could speak about my mum uh, without literally bursting into tears, I realised that the girls had had healed me. Do your daughters have a relationship with her now? Not a, not a lot. Yeah. So, you know, my mum lives in Australia and we're in New York, so that's, that's one thing. But no, they don't. They're, they're very, very close to my husband's mum, who is, you know, their real abuelita. But... Um, 
yeah, but no, they don't have a, you know, and I have seen her say and do things to the girls that brought all of that pain back up inside of me because of like things she'd said to them and, and everything. And I, you know, when I started to see that, I was like, oh yeah, no way. You are not putting that on the girls. Like, so I just became fiercely protective of them as well. I have so many friends and I know so many listeners who've reached out to me in the past who will so appreciate everything you are saying. It is so heartbreaking. Having children really puts in perspective like how we were treated as children. Exactly. And suddenly it feels to see to see how little we were, you know, right in front of us again. And to to see in our children ourselves and be like, oh, I didn't deserve that. It's it's exactly really intense. And thank you so much it for is. voicing it. And look, you know, and and this is not easy. And in in fairness, I'm doing this because I know my mum will never hear this podcast. Mm. But um, but it, you know, it does not feel good or natural to be speaking candidly about my mum you know because she's my mum but it's it got to the point where you know it was it was you know I needed to to do it to protect me you know I I you know I was in my I was in my 40s and I was still crumbling at the thought of you know my mum not loving me Mm -hmm. or liking me the point so you know it just got to the point where I thought you know I have to I have to get tough and I have to push her away and just be you know no more and um but but it never feels good to be honest about that because it's just as I said it is just so not right to not have a wonderful loving relationship with your mum you know so many people share all the Instagram photos of their mothers helping them every step of the way with their with the grandchildren all the time and all these things. And um, to say that a relationship with a parent has been so fractured, especially the mother-child relationship, it, it almost like it brings back all the shame again. Like, well, why wasn't I enough for this to, to be the apple of her eye? Like, why, like what is wrong with me that that this wasn't easier and to realize like that's not the truth and that everyone's doing the best they can, but we're all dealing with a lot of intergenerational trauma and some people didn't learn or have the tools in order to be the parent that we always needed. At the same time, that can also create a lot of drive in a person. And I'm curious, you don't share this in the book, but I'm wondering, you have such relentless drive and do you think that your relationship with your mother informed that at all? Or what was the spark that like gets you to go further than everyone else? I, that, you know, you really are mixing it up here, Ellie. I love it. But yes, I a hundred percent believe that I am the person I am in terms of my, um, my strength and tenacity and, and the drive in no small part because of who my mum was. Because, you know, when, you know, I spent, I spent a whole lot of my childhood trying to be um, accepted and acknowledged by her, 
And then the flip side of that was when I realized that being the good girl and the overachiever wasn't working, I then turned into the bad girl and I got plenty of attention from her then, but it clearly wasn't the right attention. So yes, 100%. And actually, I have said to, you know, I obviously have a lot of very successful female entrepreneur girlfriends and this is not you know across the board but many of them many of them have had very fractured relationships with their mums and I have said in the past I reckon we should write a book about the correlation between you know successful women and you know their broken relationships with their mother 100% because I do think that uh, there is something there and you know, I, it's so, to, to go back to the judgment for one second, because I've never, you know, I've had 215 episodes and I've never been able to talk with someone about this. So I, I will move on everyone in a second, yeah. but I'm just so excited to talk I'm, with I'm you about the, this. I'm the crazy Australian that has no filter that just tells <laughs> the truth. But it's got, got me into a lot of trouble over the years, I can assure you. <laughs> well, everyone will read about that in the book. Uh-huh. So with this, though, there is a judgment about... Because again, like people see the sacred relationship between the mother and child. And so there are so many women out there who have a very difficult relationship with their mother, and yet they never bring it up because it's looked down upon. Like there is a, a stigma to that as the child. And I want to oh. say that my, I mean, so many of the incredibly important women in my life, I would say the majority of the guests that have been on this podcast have had like majorly screwed up relationships with their moms. And and that is what has driven them and has made them the most conscious, loving parents to their own children. Well, I, I have said, you know, it, as sad as it is, you know, I, I hold my mum up as kind of the poster child of what I never want to be. Mm. And when I've, you know, because we're all, we're all a part of where we came from, right? So I'm not going to lie and say that I haven't had moments where I've 100% channeled my mum in my parenting, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I catch myself and go, oh, shit, like, the, you know, that's horrible sort of thing. And, um, yeah, it's it's just a very yeah, it's just, it's just a a horrible thing to to have that in your heart about your own mum. Okay, so you said I had always been a bit of a cheeky kid. Mm-hmm. I have a very, very, very cheeky kid. Her name is Sabrina. She was a year old when I started the podcast. She's five now. And over the past four years, listeners have listened to her antics. And just the, she's my little Mustang and she is so much. And I'm wondering, are any of your four daughters also cheeky? And what would you say to mothers out there who have a little version of Reagan living with them? (laughs) Well, a hundred percent my girls, like they, they, a couple of them actually make me look like a shrinking violet. So <laughs> my mother does get joy in that. She has said uh, before, oh, it's wonderful that it's finally gone full circle, you know. So uh, um, Sounds a lot like my mom with those comments. <laughs> <laughs> they, are, they are a challenge, the girls. They're all very strong-willed and they'll push the boundaries if and when they can. Um, 
But, you know, uh, and I hope they don't ever hear this, but, you know, I think that's a fabulous thing. It makes for parenting them tough, absolutely, um, because, you know, it's like, like I said, children, it's like it's like breaking in a horse, right? You just have to not let them get away from you or they're gone forever sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're they... We we are disciplinarians, Marcos and I. There's no doubt about it, you know. But um, but I think it's a wonderful thing because I know that these girls they are going to be fine. People are not going to be able to take advantage of the Moya Jones girls as they get <laughs> older. So as tough as it is to parent them right now, I think it's a wonderful thing that they have that kind of personality and you know challenging personality at times but yeah I I'm I'm very happy that they're all that way well I'll admit to you that I have a terrible memory I cannot remember anything ever but I do remember exactly where I was when I listened to your episode of how I built this and oh yeah god moms go take a listen after this episode you must um you must listen to that episode and then obviously pick up Reagan's book because there's so much more. I mean, she shares everything. Um, so you were working at The Economist uh, and mm-hmm. this was your side hustle for years, Aiden and Nay. And, um, you know, in 2019, side hustles are like getting a whole lot of love on social media and they're like, there's all these e-courses about how to have your side hustle. And sometimes it feels a little pyramid schemey to me. Um, there's a lot of ego feeding, I feel. Uh, Cause you know, a publicist costs a lot of money and then there's these elaborate, I mean, I also live in Los Angeles, so I'm at like the apex of all of this, but you know, there's all these elaborate parties and super judgy phrase that I'm always trying to beat out of my own head because I'm so self-critical is like this phrase vanity project. But I feel like there's so much right now about making it seem like your thing is really big when there isn't actually a foundation. And what I really appreciate about your book is how you share that, you know, you were interested in the longevity of this business. You were, you're very honest about how you kept the business lean, how you said no to these big, shiny opportunities that would not have kept your business running as strongly, like that were too big of a risk at the time or just not smart, even though it would have looked really cool to have been in Walmart at the time or in Harrods. And I really appreciate you sharing that. So can you teach us mamas a little bit about measured growth? Well, what I would say, especially when you're starting out, forget all the shiny object stuff that's going on. And I do agree with you, Ellie, it's everywhere. And I kind of I kind of laugh a little bit when, you know, everybody's an entrepreneur these days. Mm-hmm. You know, all they've got to do is have an idea and all of a sudden they're an entrepreneur. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't think I called myself an entrepreneur until I had a $50 million business, you know. So, I love you so um, much. <laughs> anyway, go on. <laughs> it's um, you know, it's. I just think it's very important to not bite off more than you can chew, and that's very hard when you're when you're trying to scale a business. But like I said, you know, all I did to build this business was get up every day, look at the endless to do list that I have, 
and pick the things that were most important, especially in the beginning, because you you know you you're you're one person or two people or three people sort of thing. Um, so in but in terms of measured growth, that that's more relevant as you are at a bigger scale because Aiden and A became a very very popular brand that people were coveting and you know like Walmart approached me that's a that's a very you know that's a that's a wonderful situ- the wonderful situation to be in right so you know, it wasn't easy to sort of say to Walmart no you can't have the product but I did because I ultimately knew it wasn't right for Aiden and Ana in its entirety it would have meant another couple of million dollars in revenue pretty quickly, um, but at what cost? You know, so you've always got to you've always got to weigh up. You know, okay, short term gain for long time, you know, misstep, or is it, you know, is it a short term gain that you can ultimately manage through, and you know like you said, create longevity with. You know, speaking about building a business, I started this podcast in 2014 with my girlfriend, Bianca Kylik, and, she, you know, she was not as obsessed with it as I was. Right. And so after the first year, um, we split off with the production company, and then she wasn't, she didn't have the bandwidth or the obsessive drive necessary to figure out how to do it on her own because she was also a successful actress and, you know, she had her other things going on. It just wasn't her priority. And I remember how scary that felt. She was super gracious, but even the idea of sending the email saying like, can I keep this going myself? And can you just write an email back saying legally that that's okay? Like doing a contract felt, even though my parents are lawyers and maybe because they are, I, um, it felt almost violating to say, hey, you don't want to do this. Now, looking back, it's insane. It's like, of course, like if someone's leaving a company, like have them sign something saying that it's all yours. Like that shouldn't be offensive. But like back in the day before I had done four years of this podcast where I get to talk to psychologists who've been (laughs) fixing me, I thought it was like I was so scared to ask her, especially with a contract, like that felt like that I didn't trust her or something. It just felt so emotionally loaded. Yeah. And that's why people don't do it. But that's why I, in the book, I was like, yeah, whether they're your best friend, your sister, your mother, it doesn't matter. It's just, I have seen people do the most horrible things for money in my journey with Aiden and Anae. And and not even and money that I don't really understand why you would sell out another human being for it because it's not life changing money it's you know it's money but and you know it's just you just do not you just do not roll the dice on that because as I said money makes people do really really messed up things so when there's companies and and money and everything involved. It's the right thing for everybody. As difficult as it is to say to your partner, your friend, your family member, "Hey, we need to we need to get this all ironed out," you know, in a contract, then it's going to be fifty times worse if 
it's all not set in stone in advance and then, you know, God forbid something goes pear-shaped like it it did with Claudia and I. Mm -hmm. I listened to How I Built This Again recently and the founder of Bonobos also had a falling out with his co-founder. And it just seems like eventually people's priorities change and there could be a falling out. So would you say, is your advice for mothers to go at it alone and to build a team around them? Or should you co-found with someone who's not your friend since it can mess up friendships? What do you, what, what's your take? I think like co-founding with a friend is fine as long as it's all the, the, the ins and outs are sorted in advance so then if it does go horribly wrong there is no there is no question about the way that it's going to be handled you know might it cost you a friendship absolutely like it did me but um but you know you can absolutely look I've I've co-founded another business now called St. Luna Spirits with my old COO from Aiden and A and you know we have a who I've worked with for the last 15 years because he worked for me at The Economist as well. That's how he came over to Aiden and Danae. And, um, you know, it's a a 12-page document down to, okay, if we do build this business to a certain amount, you know, can that trigger us wanting to sell it? Like we, the, the detail in it is excruciating, but now we don't have to think about it again because there's no there's no concerns about if one of us wants out or if you know if one wants to sell and the other one doesn't we've we've ironed everything out in advance so that it's just it is what it is that must feel so freeing to to know yeah well once you've once you've been screwed like you know, and gone through what I did, you know, you don't, you don't make the same mistake twice. Clearly, I didn't know what the hell I was doing the first time around. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of easy for me to sit here and say, well, this is exactly what you have to do. But that's only from firsthand experience of not doing it the right way the first time. Well, we don't have time to get into this, but you were fired from Aiden and Nene. I was. And you go into great detail in the book about what went down. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask you more about this next chapter. So with Mm -hmm. your moonshine company, I went on the website and y'all, it is so sexy. Like you made moonshine (laughs) so sexy. (laughs) Look, full disclosure, those those models are wearing a lot of my clothes that I can only use as a headband now, like I, they don't go anywhere near me. But even if I do get the weight back off, I, I can never put those on again after those supermodels of like gorgeous women have had them on. So that was a mistake. <laughs> no, but I love it that you're down to like the art direction of the website. So you, you are in total like- control of everything you do. You remind me so much of a guest who was on her name is Santi White. As a musician, she's Santi Gold. And she is like you down to like her every music video, like disparate youth, like everything she's done. She touches every element. And I love that. I love that you get so down and dirty in it. Well, it's, it's super important, though, when you're when you're building a brand, you know, like it's I want the brand to 
be reflective of, you know, what I want because we're building it. So if you hand that off to somebody else, then it's going to have their spin on it. So, yeah, it's fun. It is It is super fun to be building something again. Where can we uh, drink it? <laughs> well, well, we we have literally the, the first the first distilled batch like arrived in our distributors warehouse a week ago. Wow. So we are just uh, just starting to to get the word out there on it. But you know, we've had a few restaurants take it on board. Um, employees only in New York have said that they're going to put it on their cocktail menu for the spring, which is pretty exciting. So it's um, you know it's. Where it's not an easy sell, though, because trying to convince people that this moonshine is lovely and smooth and high end, you know, that's not the norm for moonshine. So there is a barrier that we have to get over because of people's perception. But we did uh, we did just win a silver medal at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition a couple of weeks back. So we're not the only ones who think it's tasty. Yeah. yeah, and also it's, it reminds me so much of Aiden and Anae, right? Like you started a business where, you know, nobody thought that, you know, first of all, in America, we didn't know about muslin blankets, but no one thought that was yeah. sexy. And you turned that into the thing that everyone, Kate Middleton included, coveted. And yeah. it's also so cool because you had a bar at your office. <laughs> Hayden and the yes. so it's this has always been a part of you. It always, and you know, people used to come to our office and sort of say, "Wow, this doesn't feel like a baby company and <laughs> baby pro." And I'm like, "Yeah, but the woman owning it is not just about babies. You know, I have the whole lot of other parts of me. You know, and mm-hmm. and uh, having a cocktail on a Friday afternoon is definitely one of them." Well, Reagan, I cannot thank you enough for writing this book with all of you know sharing with us all the ups and downs. I really appreciate your candor and your hard-earned wisdom that you were so generous in sharing with your readers and now with our listeners. Thank you so much, Ellie. It means a lot that that you enjoyed the book. Very much. Thank you so much, Reagan. That was so fun. Really, really appreciate it. Wow, you really, you really did go places nobody's ever gone before. I will give you that. Like Yay. ten years of being interviewed, and uh, you asked me questions I've never been asked before. So, good job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm trying not to be such the good girl, where I'm always like trying, to, you know, because my mother's such a hard ass. Like where I'm always trying to get the approval, but I'll take it here, Reagan. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, amazing, and it felt very natural. Like Aww. having done lots of interviews, you know, you're very good at what you do, Ellie. So oh, congratulations. You. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 